before I left for the Philippines, we began to study the book of Ruth. And we got through the first chapter. And just to review a bit to help us as we look at chapter 2. We find that the first five verses, the narrator of this book, the storyteller, paints a very dark and bleak picture. If it were a painting, it would be the black background. I think if you were staging this as a play, all the lights would be out and the background would in fact be black. If you remember, the story is set in the days of the judges, which we are told at the end of the book of Judges, everyone did as he saw fit. There was a famine in the land, we are told. And we saw in the series on creation that we, attend, we tend to attribute famines and things like that to natural causes, you know, these various events in human history. Or oftentimes people will call them an act of God, interestingly enough. When we read about a famine, we tend to look for disease, locusts, drought, war. And somehow we have disconnected human beings from creation, that somehow our actions, in fact, do not impact creation. Well, I think we've reached the point in our history, because of science and technology, that people know that that's simply not the case. If you pollute the environment, there, in fact, will be consequences. But in Scripture, if you read Scripture carefully, particularly the Old Testament prophets, we find time and time again that if creation flourishes or it wastes away, depending on the conformity of humanity to God's justice. When we do the things that God would have us to do, it is reflected in creation. When we do not do the things that we're supposed to do, it is reflected in creation as well. Scripture calls it judgment. And judgment, I think, it sounds far too negative for its own good. Um, the reality is that judgment is not condemnation. Judgment is correction. And so I believe that the famine that came on these people had a purpose. First of all, they had, they had left uh, following God in obedience. But secondly, I think the famine, in fact, brought them back to God. Okay. The third thing we are told is that the story begins in Bethlehem in Judah, which, as we saw, you know, we think too much New Testament. That's where Jesus was born. Look at the last two stories in Judges. They both begin in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, in Bethlehem, outside Jerusalem. The one is about the beginning of an idol worshiping cult, and the Levite comes from Bethlehem. The second story is of a Levite who goes to Bethlehem to woo back his concubine. And on the way home in Gibeah, where they spend the night, she is raped to death by the men of Gibeah. So this is the third story in a row, as the canon has it, that starts in Bethlehem. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, please, not Bethlehem again. I mean, because it just seems like terrible things happen in Bethlehem. And indeed, there is a famine. So the story continues, it begins in Bethlehem, but it continues in Moab. A man with his wife and two sons leaves Bethlehem and he goes to Moab. And it appears to be a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. The Moabites are not only the political enemies of Israel, they are in fact pagans. They worship the false gods of Baal and Ashtart. The theological danger is very real. And then there is death. First, 
Elimelech leave, uh, dies, leaves his family behind, and then his two sons, Malon and Kilion, die, and we are left with three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And so in the first five verses, what we find is darkness, darkness, darkness. But there's more. It is as though the storyteller is not content to paint a bleak background. He or she wants to tinge it or tint it or give it further uh, undertones by including great irony in it. This is found in the names. Elimelech means my God is king. He and his family come from a part of Bethlehem known as Ephrathah, which means fruitful. His wife's name means pleasant, lovely, and delightful. But there's famine in a place known as fruitful. The man who says, my God is king, goes to live among pagans. And then he dies, and the one whose name is delightful is left bereft. She has lost her husband, and then she loses her two sons. And so the stage is dark, but it is onto the stage that light appears. Because in verse number six, we are told that the Lord had visited his people. Naomi has heard the news. It's amazing news that God has visited his people. The place where famine had driven them away is now a place where God is providing food for his family. An important lesson there that, in fact, the famine, I would say, is God's doing as judgment. But then he also provides food for his family. So Naomi heads home with her two daughters-in-law. Long story short, one goes home at the urging of Naomi. Orpah goes home. But Ruth refuses to leave her. And so they travel back to Bethlehem. The narrator continues the story. If you look in chapter 1 at verse number 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi rejects the meaning of her name, pleasant, lovely, and delightful, and instead insists that she be called Mara, or bitter. There are four reasons why she should be called bitter, and she gives them in order. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I mentioned this when we went through it. It's important. Naomi does not blame her circumstances. She blames God. And we might, we might be horrified that, that she would do such a thing. But in doing so, there is faith. She refers to God as the Almighty at the beginning and the end. She has four things there. Almighty, the Lord, the Lord, and then Almighty. Um, you might say, well, so what? This doesn't necessarily sound like faith. But ask yourself, what was behind what happened to Naomi? I mean, stop and think about it. We know the story. We're millennia later. Okay? Three millennia later. We know the story. We know how it turns out. So, what was behind all that happened to her and her family? Was it chance? Was it bad luck? These just circumstances? The ebb and flow of history? No. And Naomi knows it. We may struggle with what is God doing? 
Sometimes it is clear, as will become apparent by the end of this book. Sometimes it is not. But we should never lose sight of the fact that God is in control, even when things are going badly. And Naomi can say that. The Lord did this. The Lord has made my life very bitter. She is quite clear about that. The chapter closes with the narrator telling us, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And I mention this just because it not only summarizes, but it shows that the narrator, I think, put a lot of thought into this because the story opens with a time reference. It's the time of the judges, and then the famine, and then Bethlehem. And it closes with Bethlehem, harvest, and then the time frame, it is the beginning of the barley harvest, which is about April or May. Today we come to chapter 2, which opens with these words. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. This marks the beginning of a new episode. It introduces a new character, Boaz, whose actual appearance comes a few verses later. And this verse provides the background for the rest of the story. It is, if you wish, the equivalent of the first five verses of chapter one, in which we need five verses to talk about the darkness. Here we have one verse, I think, that sort of sheds light and and the light comes on, if you wish, in the light of Naomi and Ruth. As the story continues, we find woven together material from chapter one. You know, we have Ruth's devotion to Naomi and the barley harvest. And the material now from verse number one, we have Boaz, and these, these will be woven together. In part, what we find in this first part of chapter two is a contrast between the wealth and status of Boaz and the poverty and vulnerability of these two widows. They're back in Bethlehem, but how are they going to live? So let's, let's look at chapter two, beginning in verses two and three. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain left behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem, where Naomi is. But how will they survive? What are they going to eat? We know it is the beginning of the barley harvest. So Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to work. Actually, she said, let me go to work. And Naomi gives her permission. Several things to consider as we begin here. First of all, Ruth is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. I don't know if you noticed that. It happens five times in this book. Three times by the narrator or the author and twice by Boaz. Five times she's simply called Ruth, and and once she refers to herself as Ruth in chapter 3. But why why is the author doing this? I mean, we know she's from Moab, we know she's a Moabitess. Why keep bringing it up? It is worth noting that the references to Ruth as a Moabitess are mentioned after she gets to Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem. After she arrives there, then suddenly she becomes Ruth the Moabitess. It implies that once she gets there, her ethnicity becomes a factor in the story. As long as she's in Moab, we're not going to call her the Moabitess because that's, that's where she lives. But now she comes to Bethlehem and, in fact, she is an alien. 
She is not from Bethlehem. She is not an Israelite. She is an outsider. She is a widow. She is vulnerable. So four times in this chapter, Boaz's protection of her from his workers is mentioned. We'll see it as we go along. If you look at verse number 22, here in chapter 2, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. See, she has no legal standing. She's an alien, a foreigner. And by the way, this is such a real problem, the possibility that you find it mentioned over and over and over again in the law. That if you have a foreigner, you have an alien, don't oppress them. Don't mistreat them because you used to be slaves in Egypt. You used to be foreigners. So when a foreigner is among you, don't mistreat them. And so the author wants us not to forget, as though we could, but he wants us not to forget that Ruth is a foreigner. She's an outsider. The work she was going to do was a gleaning. And let me just read to you some passages in which God is very clear about this from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. It's from Leviticus 19 and it is repeated in Leviticus 23. And then in Deuteronomy 24, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless and the widow. Uh, Ruth is both an alien, she's the Moabitess, and she is a widow. But gleaning is work. It's back-breaking work. And having hurt my back when I was in the Philippines, I do not say that lightly. I, I, I feel it. The, the bending over and picking up what has been dropped by the harvesters. I'm not a farmer. I don't pretend to be. But when I read the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it seems that the Lord's commands reek of inefficiency. Why shouldn't I go back over my field again? Why shouldn't I beat the branches of the olive trees again? Why shouldn't I go over the vines again? We need to remember, and here I think we are reminded, Our survival does not depend on ourselves. Yes, as a farmer, you're to work hard. You're to be good at what you do. But you should not work as though your survival depends upon you. Like, I've got to go back again and make sure I get everything. Zib read to us today from 2 Corinthians 8. And it was interesting how she... uh, the part she read <clears throat> refers to the collecting of manna. And it says something that he that gathered much did not have too much. He that gathered little had enough. As much as to say, the work that you do does not determine your survival. You are supposed to work, but God is the one who sustains us. So don't worry about getting the corners or if you've dropped something or if you've left the sheath behind. 
Don't go over the olive trees a second time. Don't go through the vineyard a second time. Because, yes, you are supposed to work, but it is God who provides our daily bread. Because otherwise, you know, in a, in a culture that is, I think, enamored with efficiency, God's commands really do not make a lot of sense. This, this is not a way to run a farm or a business. Our lives are in God's hands. And I think Ruth knew this. She asked Naomi for permission. She planned to glean, which is allowed under the law, the Mosaic law. And she would go behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. This is important, and I want you to remember this. I think it is clear throughout the story that Ruth sees herself as dependent on grace, both human and divine. The generosity of, of a farmer who would allow her to glean, but also this is under the grace of God. Naomi, who is the human mover in this story, gives permission the Lord, who is the true mover in the story and in all stories, seen in verse number two, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. The, the ESV has, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The narrator knows this is no accident. It was the working of God's gracious care. So Ruth does not work as though her working will, in fact, cause them to survive. She knows that she needs to work. But it is God, in fact, who, who gives daily bread. And so as she goes out, it is God who directs her to a particular field that just happens to belong to Boaz. In verses 4 through 13, we have two conversations. The first is between Boaz. Now we meet him because he was introduced in verse number 1. And then the second is between Boaz and Ruth. Look, if you would, at verses 4 through 7. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now except for a short rest in the shelter. First, the greetings. It is believed that the usual greeting among the Hebrews, among the Israelites, was shalom. That is, peace. Peace be to you. And so the greeting between Boaz and his workers is worth noting. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. We find a similar greeting in Psalm 129, though in a negative context. I find fast. It's also in a harvesting context. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. There's a real sense in which it is the Lord who brings the harvest. It is the one who provides for his people. And you know what? I think after a famine, people might be more keenly aware of this than they had been before. And so the, the idea of the Lord bless you, the Lord be with you, um, for us might sound just a bit too pious, a, a bit too spiritual. Um, certainly not something we go around saying in the workplace 
as though the workplace is not a place where God is. Um, I think these people have a very keen sense that what we are doing, we are able to do because of God's grace, and God has, in fact, provided us barley that we can harvest. Then there is the question. Uh, Boaz notices Ruth, that she is a foreigner. We don't know how she not- he noticed that. Maybe she was wearing different clothing. Um, and he asked her workers about her, and you know, whose young woman is that? It seems that he assumes she belongs to someone, either as a servant or as a wife. They respond by telling him that she is the Moabitess. And there's that word again. She has come back from Moab with Naomi. You'll notice it's the first thing they say about her. I mean, they go on to say that, yes, she's been working very hard, but the very first thing they say is she's from out of town. Uh, She's a foreigner. She's the Moabitess. She asked for permission. She did not assume, you know, she did not demand her rights to glean. She asked for permission and she worked hard and steadily. Now, this conversation and the information that is given leads to the second conversation, and this is directly between Boaz and Ruth. He is the one who initiates the conversation. And now Ruth, who has been dealing with the workers, now must deal directly with the owner of the field. Beginning in verse number 8. Follow along, if you would, as I read. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. An amazing passage. The instructions from Boaz seem simple enough. Don't go anywhere else. Don't glean anywhere else. Stay here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along. Whenever you get thirsty, go and get water from the jar. I have told the men not to touch you. What this entails, don't touch you, is not spelled out. But elsewhere we find that this word this, that is used in Hebrew, to touch, means one of several things. Either to beat violently, so I've told my men not to beat you violently, to inflict injury, or to have sexual relations. So when Boaz says, I've told my men not to touch you, he is in fact providing protection for her. This is not to happen. She is a foreigner, she's a widow, she is vulnerable, she's a gleaner. One might be tempted to see her as a leech. She is to be protected. In all that he says, what Ruth hears is grace, undeserved favor. What have I done 
Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz, for his part, marked what she had done for Naomi, which came at great cost. She left her father and mother, her homeland, and came to live among people that to her are foreigners. And then in verse number 12, Boaz blesses her. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Um, If any of you would like to preach again in the future, this would be a tremendous passage to preach on this this verse in and of itself. It could be the basis, maybe even a series of sermons. I'll point out several things. First of all, the Lord repay you for what you have done. The Lord richly reward you. I'll take these together. Many Christians, and I think I would include myself in it from time to time, are deeply suspicious of people who are doing good for the sake of a reward. Motives, I think, are always difficult to pin down. But if you have, in fact, this notion that I'm going to do good in order that I will be rewarded, because that seems to be what it is, uh, or God would repay me, which means I've paid something out, so God's going to repay me, uh, we just really start to get nervous when we start to hear language like that. And yet, Boaz seems fairly clear. This is what he wants God to do for this foreign widow, this Moabitess, this woman named Ruth to repay her and to richly reward her. What are we to make of this? Are we right to be suspicious and nervous? What are we to make of this? I will suggest several lines of thinking. First of all, there is a difference between arbitrary rewards and proper rewards. Arbitrary rewards have no connection with our actions whatsoever. That is, what we have done, our behavior, and what God gives to us, may not be connected at all. And in this we would say it is sheer grace. That in doing something, um, God has graciously given us something arbitrarily. There's no, you can't say, oh, I did this, therefore God gave me this. There seems to be no connection whatsoever. And while there is nothing wrong with being arbitrarily rewarded, um, I think there is a problem with seeking it for its own sake saying, God, I want you to bless me in whatever way you want to. I just want you to give me something. Proper rewards, on the other hand, are the direct and related consequence of behavior. Jesus said, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. So there does seem to be a direct connection between action and what God does in response. However, what is a proper reward, what is a prophet's reward or a righteous man's reward, we are not told. This is left up to God. Um, We should not say, oh, I gave somebody a hundred dollars, therefore God should reward me in turn by giving me back a hundred dollars. The proper reward is still grace, and it is God who determines what is the right reward. The greatest reward we can have, by the way, is our relationship with God. Abraham was told by God, I am your exceeding great reward. I am. God said, I am your reward. 
Whether arbitrary or proper, all rewards are gracious in nature. That is to say, we do not deserve them. You might say, wait a minute, what about the proper rewards? If I've done something for a prophet or for a righteous man, shouldn't I get something in return? I'm reminded of the words of Jesus found in Luke 17. So you also, he says, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. We should not imagine that we can say, I've done X amount of good works or obedience and therefore I'm owed a proper reward. Jesus says when you have done everything you were told to do, everything you were told to do, and none of us can say that, but for the sake of argument, when you've done everything you were told to do, all you can say is we are unprofitable servants. We've simply done what we were told to do. That is to say, if you were to put us on the marketplace, you wouldn't make a profit. You might break even. Okay? We are unprofitable servants. I'd also have you consider, as we talk about being repaid or rewards, that the options we find in Scripture are binary. A word that academics today hate, um, because we'd rather dwell in the gray area. It's black or white. But in Scripture, we find that God either will bless people or he will curse people. There is no sort of gray area in which God just sort of leaves you alone and, you know, you're in that no man's land in which God sort of ignores you. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When Israel entered the promised land, they were instructed by Moses beforehand, they were to renew the covenant on two mountains, the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. Psalm 129, which I mentioned earlier, the psalmist writes, May those who pass by not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. See, the options in Scripture are either to be blessed by God, to be rewarded by God, or to be cursed. There's no third option. And so I would argue that what Boaz says to Ruth is entirely appropriate. We may struggle with the whole business of reward and being repaid, but it is God's grace. And I think Boaz knows that and Ruth does as well. The context of this blessing that he pronounces is covenant. He speaks of the Lord, the God of Israel. God had entered into a covenant with Israel. The covenant was of God's choice and of God's initiative. And it was a covenant of grace. What we find is obedience to the law is not a source of blessing. Rather, it augments the blessing that has already been given because Israel is in a relationship with God. See, it's not as though God is here and Israel's here and God says, if you do good things, I'll do good things to you. He has entered into covenant relationship with them. He is their great reward. They've already got it. Okay. They don't obey to be blessed. They are, in fact, already blessed. When they obey God, it simply adds to what God has already done for them. And Boaz assumes this to be the case for Ruth. Wait a minute, she's Ruth the Moabitess. She's a foreigner. She's an alien. Doesn't she worship false gods? But he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge? 
It's an expression we find throughout the Old Testament. It expresses protection and provision, how God protects his people and provides for them. But the underlying assumption is he does this for his people, not for others. Israel is under his wings. And now Ruth has left father and mother. She's left her home. She's come to Israel. And she is now a part of the covenant. She has put herself under God's protection. Ruth acknowledges his kindness. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have, brought, you have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. What Boaz has done, in Ruth's eyes, is to give her comfort, to speak kindly to her, all in light of the reality that she has no standing. She's an alien. She's a widow. She's vulnerable. And yet he has graciously, very graciously, allowed her to work there. And more than that, he in fact has instructed her that if she needs water from time to time, that she can in fact share the water that his workers have. The Lord willing, we'll continue this next week. I just want to mention two things in closing that I find striking. The first is that both Boaz, who is the owner, and Ruth, who is the gleaner, refuse to stand on their rights. Boaz as the owner and Ruth as the gleaner, she asked permission before she started gleaning. She didn't assume, well, it's the law. I have the right to glean. It's the law. She, in fact, asked permission. And in a day and in a culture in which it seems everyone insists on his or her rights, I find this to indeed be striking. The graciousness of Boaz shows that he he will not say, listen, this is my place, this is my field, and I want you out of here right now. He graciously allows her to work. And she, for her part, does not assume that she has the right to glean there because it is the law. But she asks for permission. Perhaps I'm making more of it than I should. But for me, I find this quite striking, particularly in light of the culture we live in today. And the second thing, as we go through this book, but also through the Old Testament, all the characters seem to have a sense that God is working, that God is doing his work. Naomi, at the end of chapter one, even though she is bitter, she says, this is what the Lord has done to me. When Boaz greets his workers and they return a greeting. There is a sense that this is what the Lord is doing. And then as Boaz blesses Ruth, he he pronounces his blessing on her, that may the Lord repay you and richly reward you. There is a real sense that God is doing his work. They don't necessarily know what this work is. And there, I think they're different from us. I think we want to know, okay, where is this all going? I mean, what is the point? I mean, where are our lives going? It isn't as though Boaz and Ruth are thinking, we're waiting for the Messiah. I wonder how this fits into the whole scheme of things. Not at all. It is God who brought the famine. It is God who visited his people by bringing them food. So now there's a harvest, the barley harvest. He has provided work for Ruth. 
life is going on, but there's a sense that God is there. God is present. I think in the time in which we live, we imagine that human history is moving, and then every once in a while we want God to sort of interrupt, you know, particularly when we're in trouble. Instead of having a sense that day by day, God is doing his work in human history. Does God do miracles? Absolutely. And yet sometimes I think we get so focused on miracles that we forget that God is sustaining us every moment of every day. God is doing a work. Naomi saw it in her bitterness. She still said, this is God's doing. And perhaps, perhaps Naomi asked herself, I wonder what this all means. I, boy, I, I'd like to know where this is all going. Um, the storyteller doesn't include that, though. What we have people, what we have is a story of people who are struggling, who have suffered loss, who have gone abroad and have come back, people who are harvesting, people who are gleaning, and yet there's all a sense that God is at work. I think it would do us good if that were part of our thinking. We may wonder from time to time, what in the world is God doing? Why are these things happening? Um, Where we should begin is, this is God's doing. God is, in fact, at work. And live our lives in that light. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, it's, it's hard not to yearn and to long for a time that we find with Boaz and Ruth in which people had a sense that you were at work, in which people did not insist on their rights. We seem surrounded by a culture of rights rather than responsibility. And too easily, too quickly, we forget that you are at work. I should be reminded the words of Jesus and my father's at work to this very day. You're always at work. And where it's all going, we in fact don't know. There is a telos, there is a purpose, but those things are in your hands. In your hands, we should in fact be obedient, not to be rewarded, but because in fact you have put us under your wings. You've brought us into covenant with yourself. And how graciously you take care of us. It does not mean that we will not suffer loss. Naomi lost her husband and two sons. It doesn't mean that things will always go well. There was in fact a famine as the book opens. But you are always there. And may we not lose sight of that. I thank you for the wonder of your word for the gift of your spirit. May he drive these things home. May we meditate on them in the days to come. As we walk through the world in this coming week, we do not know what is ahead of us, but you have prepared the way for us. You will be walking with us side by side. May we have a sense of your presence. And by your grace, may we be gracious to others. May we be lights in a world of darkness. May we reflect the love you have shown to us 
to those we come in contact with. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.